rage and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. And he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion. I will tell them the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod and iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice. Trembling, kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge. Maybe see. Several weeks ago, Pastor John preached through Psalms chapter one, and today we're obviously looking at Psalm two. And we don't mean to preach through the Psalms consecutively. Uh, but we wanted to cover these first two psalms first because they were placed together in order to act as a doorway into the rest of the psalms, into the rest of the book of the psalms. Uh, psalm 1, for example, opens with a blessing. Psalm 2 closes with a blessing. These, these act as, uh, as, as bookends, and everything in between those bookends ought to be held on for us as we read the rest of the psalms. Truths to be remembered and cherished. Kept in mind as we, as we read the, the, what we read throughout the, the scripture there. Psalm 1 is directed at the individual. It's more private, more personal. Psalm 2, it goes public to the world, to the nations. And there's many parallels between these two psalms. Uh, we have the righteous and the blessed, the wicked and the scoffers, and, and several other parallels. All I have to say, again, these first two psalms act as the preface. 
to the rest of the book. We know that this psalm was written by King David, Acts 4, tells us that. And this psalm was a coronation psalm. That is, it was used in ceremonies in which the kings of Israel were, were crowned. We don't know if David wrote it for himself or he wrote it for his son Solomon. But eventually, over time, the kings of Israel would have this psalm read at that ceremony when they were, were, were crowned as king. And so this psalm does have a specific historical context. And we'll look at a few of those briefly this morning as we work through the psalm. And yet this psalm is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. The New Testament authors quote this psalm often because in it they see it pointing towards Jesus, a greater, far greater Davidic king, King Jesus. If uh, you've turned on uh, the television recently or radio or opened up any one of your uh, social media apps, one of the things that you're going to find is obvious moral decline. What was once shameful to be even whispered in, 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 in hush tones and back rooms is now proclaimed and championed in the public square. And any resistance to this new morality is seen at the very least as being closed-minded or maybe frumpish. And we ask ourselves, what, what are we to make of all this that we see here? What, what, what are we to think of this? How is all of this going to turn out? Well, Psalm 2 tells us that. And Psalm 2 begins by telling us that rebellion of the world is vain. The rebellion of the world is vain. Look at those first few verses again with me. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In the psalm's immediate context, David looks around and he sees these Gentile nations that surround Israel, that hate Yahweh, God the Father, and hate the people of God. And in the, his original setting, God's anointed was King David himself. In the Old Testament, Kings, priests, and prophets, they were anointed with oil. It symbolized God's presence with them, that God's favor was upon them. 1 Samuel chapter 16, 13 tells us that David was anointed as king over Israel. But on the grand scale, God's anointed is King Jesus. Anointed, by the way, comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is where we get the word Messiah. And so we see these nations raging against God and his anointed, and they are plotting. The word plot here is the same root word translated in Psalm 1 to meditate. In Psalm 1, the godly meditate on the law day and night. In Psalm 2, here in this verse, the nations meditate or plot on a revolt against God. They are plotting, they are meditating. How can we advance our own agenda? What strategy can we use to push our world view? They are raging and they are plotting against the Lord. Notice, this isn't just one nation. This is nations plural. It's just not those nations that we may think of that we may think are particularly wicked. It's not 
just Afghanistan or maybe a liberal country to our north. And notice that there is no parenthetical phrase here. There is no exception clause for any particular nation. None. They are all raging and plotting. Verse 1 sounds like it's simply the masses who are part of this rebellion. But in verse 2 we find that kings and rulers are part of this rebellion as well. The irony is thick. The kings of the earth are plotting in mutiny against the king of the universe. We know there are very few things that the rulers of this world can agree upon. They can't agree on politics. They can't agree on economics. And yet, they are in complete agreement in mutiny against God and his anointed. They are united in their stand against God and his ways and his moral law. A simple look around at the world, and you will not find one country that champions God's holy law. Not one. Rather, you find the nations and the people championing the ever-changing, ever-fluid cultural morality. That's what they champion. These bonds and cords that we find in verse 3 are God's word. They are his law, his instructions, his prohibitions, his way to live a flourishing and a fulfilling life. People and the rulers, they see God and his word as bondage. It's, it's bondage to them, keeping them from happiness, keeping them from fulfillment. They see them as burdensome, restricting their ultimate joy and happiness, pleasure. What they want is it's to be kept from them. So these bonds and cords, they must be broken. They must be cast away. Ultimately, they want to be free from the authority of God and his rightful rule over them. They want to be an authority unto themselves. They want to be free from these bonds and cords. God and his anointed, they will not have rule over me. I want free. H.B. Charles once commented on this freedom from God's law, freedom from God. And he used an analogy, and I'm going to paraphrase that analogy a bit. He says this, Is a tree truly free when it is delivered by the wind from its bondage to its roots? Is a fish truly free when it is delivered by the fisherman's hook from its bondage to the water? And is a train truly free when it jumps the track and is free from its bondage to the track? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And no soul is ever free when it is a rebellion against God who created us. And when we live as though we are outside of the authority of God, we are in peril. This is a way that seems right to a man, but ends in death. The people of Jesus then. They wanted to be free from God, free from him, free from Jesus. And Peter in Acts 4, verses 25 and 26, quotes the first two verses of this psalm. He quotes them because in the first two verses of this psalm, he sees the murder of Jesus fulfilled. And immediately after quoting these first two verses, he says this in the following two verses, Acts 4, 27 and 28. He says this, and he's saying this to God the Father. He says, 
For truly in this city that were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. The rulers and the people were raging against God and rebelled against the king. And here we have the ultimate act of plotting and raging. But this rebellion against God did not begin in Acts 4 or when Christ was crucified. From nearly the beginning of time, man has decided that he would not live under God's sovereign rule. Genesis 1, Adam is made in the image of God. And he is given dominion over the earth. Verses 26 and 28 tell us that. He is to rule over all of creation. And then in Genesis 2, God tells him, just don't eat of this one tree. And one measly chapter later, one measly chapter later, Adam fails. He eats of the tree. Adam did not want to yield to the divine authority. He wanted to be the authority. He wanted to do what he wanted to do, so he did what he did. I am the authority. We jump forward in time just a little bit to Genesis 11, to the Tower of Babel. We know what happened there, right? The, the, the folks are building this, this huge tower to make a name for themselves, the scripture says. And the leader of, of these folks in Babel was a guy by the name of Nimrod. We know this because Genesis 10 tells us. In Genesis 10, it was several kings, or I'm sorry, several people. But it's the first time in Genesis 10 that we see the word nations in all scripture. And it's the first time that we see the word kingdom in all of Scripture. And this word kingdom is used in connection with Nimrod. And it says this in Genesis 10.10. 10, the beginning of his kingdom, that's Nimrod, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, and Calvin, and it lists several other places and cities. And Jewish tradition is not kind to Nimrod. Hmm. Jewish tradition is not canonical, but it is interesting to understand or see at least what it is that the people thought of Nimrod. And a Jewish historian of biblical times living during those times captured this and writes this of Nimrod. He writes this of Nimrod. The people of Babel were incited to this insolent contempt of God by Nimrod. He persuaded the people to attribute their prosperity not to God, but to their own valor. Sound familiar? Making a name for themselves. Nimrod threatened to have his revenge on God if God wished to inundate the earth with again with water. This is obviously after the flood. For he would build a tower higher than the water could reach and avenge the destruction of their forefathers. The first king named in scripture rebelled against God. It's not something that he learned from another king. It was already there and he simply led the people to rebel against the Lord. It wasn't neutral actually aggressive leading the people in history. From the beginning, from the beginning of time, from Adam's day, to Nimrod's day, to David's day, to Christ's day, to our day today, and until the Lord returns, there will be this constant revolt and rebellion against the Lord. Someone once said, the world hasn't gone mad, we're just seeing it for what it really is. This is the history of mankind. 
It is the willful trajectory of the world, and it will continue to be so. And for us, these first three verses, they are our current reality. This is what we live in. This is the world that we live in. But we ought not to lose hope. Notice, verse 1, not all of the rulers of nations, the raging and plotting is in vain. That David, he is perplexed that, that, that these, these nations would rebel against the all-powerful, all-sovereign God of the universe. And so David doesn't allow any suspense to build. Rather, from the beginning, David says that what they are doing is in vain. It is futile. It is pointless. It is not going to pay off. One commentator, one person going back, he said, why? The total of David seems to be, why did they even bother it's in vain. It's in vain because God has a response to this rebellion. God's response to rebels is indignation. God's response to rebels is indignation. Look at verses 4 through 6, if you will. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, and he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. My holy hill. Earlier this year, I was watching the AFC championship game. Y'all remember that? Who did? Mm -hmm. The Bengals were playing the Kansas City Chiefs. The uh, the winner goes on to the Super Bowl. The loser goes home with their head hung in the feet. And uh, the Kansas City, they were seven and a half point favorite in this game. They um, they were they already been the two previous the two previous Super Bowls they won one of them they had one of the best quarterbacks in the league and somehow the Bengals make it into overtime with these guys 24-24 overtime first four games NC drives down ball is intercepted Bengals are driving down if they can just score a touchdown we're gonna win they get stopped they got hit the field goal. This uh, new kicker, Evan McPherson, rookie field goal kicker. He has a field goal percentage of 84%. You're not familiar with the NFL kicking percentages? Not so good. Okay, bottom half of the new kickers. He walks out there, and I'm in a room of 25 to 30 people. And everybody is on their feet. They're, their hands are on their head. You see people wringing their hands. They're pacing back and forth. A few brothers are like, Dear Lord, please. <laughs> I mean, they want to make Thank the Lord he made that king. But the nations are raging, the people are plotting, the kings are setting themselves against the Lord and take counsel against them. And God sits. God sits comfortably, confidently. God isn't like us. He's not pacing back and forth across the throne room. He's not sweating from, from anxiety, wondering, oh, what's going to happen? Are these creatures going to somehow overthrow me? He sits. And he laughs. His laughter, laugh, he holds them in derision. This isn't a laugh that is a result of something that is funny or hilarity. It's a laughter that's demonstrating contempt. You would rage against me. Isaiah 40, verse 5 says, The nations are counted as dust on the scales. Meaning that they are so small that they're immeasurable. You can't even weigh them that they're so small and insignificant compared to God. The world has forgotten 
many levels. Best way I can think of it. It's kind of like a poodle in the Amazon wild who sees a pork chop. But that pork chop is, already has an owner, and it's, it's this hungry lion. And the poodle thinks he's going to walk up and take that pork chop. It's not going to happen. I mean, that poodle is about to become a snack. And, and this is somewhat similar. It, it's, it's, it's hysterical. Looking at that, we would see that. We would say that that poodle is about to meet its demise. Psalm 33, verse 8 to 11. The psalmist says there, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The God of the Bible is not to be trifled with. His word is clear. He is all-powerful. And in his powerful, he brought all that we can see and touch into existence. And he brought all that we cannot see and cannot touch into existence. He stretched out the heavens. Think about that. If you've ever been out at night, he stretched those out. I don't know if you've seen the pictures, but he's been taken from this new telescope, the James Webb Telescope. They've been out on the social media. They placed the pictures of this new James Webb Telescope up against the Hubble Telescope. And this James Webb Telescope has taken the most brilliant and majestic, uh, just mind-blowing, expansive pictures of the universe. And looking at those pictures, you, you, you get just a slight glimpse of the awesomeness of our God. Brothers and sisters, his absolute rule is never in jeopardy. Never. There is no frustrating or preventing his plans and his purposes. It will not happen. And so he laughs at rebels in Israel. Then he speaks to them. Notice that he speaks to them in wrath. He terrifies them in his fury. Fury here means to set ablaze. It carries the idea of a red, hot anger. And, and this may make some of us uncomfortable. That God would burn with red hot anger towards people, rebellious people. But we need to understand that this is the full testimony of Scripture, from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture. God did not respond to this rebellion, to these rebellious folks in this way, to this raging. He would not be a holy God. Verse 6. Look there, verse 6, God speaks. And he says, as for me, you stop there for me. You've spoken, you've done, you said what you want to say now. I speak. As for me. The rulers take their desire to throw off God's command, and God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zion was the mountain where David built his city, the mountain set apart for worship. In the immediate context of this passage, David is the king on Mount Zion, and the nations should worship, or I'm sorry, rather submit to him. As for Jesus, God has installed Jesus as the messianic king in heaven on Zion. Jesus now reigns at the right hand of God the Father, and they should worship him. Because of who he is, 
because of the authority that he has been given. What kind of authority does he have? What kind of reign? The reign of King Jesus is unsurpassed. The reign of King Jesus is unsurpassed. Look at verses 7 and 9. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. We can read this. We'll make and give the nations to you as an inheritance. Give the nations to you as an inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In this historical context, we, we know that the kings of Israel and Judah were often, often called sons of God. Indicating they were in a special relationship with God, who placed them there uh, sovereignly, lifted them into that position. Specifically in this song, he placed them there on their coronation day. Today I have begotten you. But these words, they take on a far greater significance as they point to Jesus, and he is the one that is now speaking. And what we learn that what is happening has been decreed by God. God is not just now realizing that the nations are rebelling. He's not just now making a decision about what am I going to do about this. God has established in eternity past what is taking place and what will take place. This is the long-standing plan and purpose of God. And God the Father says to God the Son, Today I have begotten you. Now, this does not mean that there was ever a time when God brought Jesus into existence. There has never been a time where Jesus has did not exist. Several passages in the scriptures point to this. We'll have time to look at them now to prove that out. I'll give a few to you. Genesis 1, the first half of John 1, John 17, 5, and others. So then in what sense is it that Jesus is begotten by God? The answer? The resurrection at the resurrection. And we see this clearly in the two times that this verse is quoted in the New Testament. We're going to allow the scriptures to interpret the scriptures. In Acts 13, Paul is preaching the gospel in Antioch. And in verse 28 of Acts 13, he says this, Jesus was laid in a tomb, and on the third day he was raised up. And he continues there, verse 32. This God fulfilled to us by raising Jesus. As it is written in the second song, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Very clear. As one commentator points out about this verse, he says, It is though the tomb is a pregnant woman who gives birth to the resurrected king. Acts 13 sees the resurrection of Jesus as vindication of his divine sonship. Hebrews 1.5 is the other verse that quotes this verse. And in Hebrews 1 5, I believe we read it earlier this morning. This verse scripted, and the scripture says there that Jesus is resurrected. He is then exalted and made far superior to the angels. And he is installed as a messianic king and now sits at the right hand of God. Both of these passages point and use this verse as being the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has always reigned. But this today I have begotten you is understood by the New Testament authors as referring to Jesus as now reigning as the resurrected and ascended king. 
But that reign rule of Jesus isn't evident today. Truth be told, we, we often forget that Jesus is reigning. When Israel came into the land, they inherited a plot of ground. This king inherited the nations. He is king of the whole world. When exactly did he inherit the nations? Does, does he get the nations? Matthew 4 is an interesting passage. Especially interesting as we consider King Jesus inheriting the nations. Matthew 4 is a chapter in which Jesus is tempted by Satan. Remember those. And one of the temptations that, that, that Satan brings to Jesus, he brings to him in verse 8. And he brings Jesus to a high place and he, and he shows them, he said, the scripture saying, verse 8 there, says, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. All the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Verse 9, he then tells Jesus, you can have them all. All you have to do is bow down. interesting that Jesus doesn't say, no Satan, you don't have the power to do that. You, you, you don't have the ability to do that. You have the authority to do all that. Doesn't say any of that. But this certainly would have meant no suffering for Christ. No cross. No pain. But Jesus came to earn the right to the nations by humbly submitting to the Father by his obedient life and his death on the cross, vindicated by his resurrection, at which time he was given the nations as his inheritance, the ends of the earth, his possession. Then you will remember a famous verse in Matthew 28, verse 18, after the resurrection. Most of us probably have it committed to memory. What does Jesus say to his disciples? All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He's saying, they are mine. I have earned them. I have right to them. I have authority over them. I have them. He sends them out. But for those who refuse to acknowledge the authority, his authority, there is frightful news when the Lord returns. So sometimes the world forgets there's a difference between Jesus when he first came to earth and his mission and what he was doing then and what he's going to be doing when he returns. There's some confusion about what Christ did when he first came to the world and the, the second time when, when he returns. First time when Jesus came to the earth, the scriptures say in Luke chapter 2, verse 7 through 10, that it came in meekness and humility. The scriptures say that, that he came not to be served, but to serve. Matthew 28, 20, or 20, 28, rather. He came to earth to be a ransom for many. Luke 10, 45. He came to seek and to save sinners. Luke 19, 10. He came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. John 3, 17. He came and he loved the unlovable. John 4, 7. And on and on and on. That is our king. He came in love and humility and self-sacrifice. And yet, these rebels, 
They crucified him. He was despised and rejected. He became obedient unto death, even death on the cross, the scripture says. And since then, he has ascended into glory at the right hand of the Father. And the Father has been patient. We have been given the very words of God to know Jesus, to know what it is he's called us to. The world has, has been given the gospel. We were told to take the gospel. The Lord has been patient. And in turn, the nations continue to rage. The people continue to block. They want nothing to do with God. Nothing to do with Jesus. And so God the Father tells his son that when he returns, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is divine righteousness, divine judgment and punishment. This is holy vengeance. Dash them to pieces. This is not simply just break them apart. It pictures utter and total destruction. Revelation 2.7 um, quotes this verse and says there that Jesus will destroy his enemies. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 8, 8 and 9 says that when Jesus comes he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey his gospel. They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction. Turn, turn, turn with me please to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. I want you to see something as I read it. I read it quickly. Revelation 19. Take refuge in him. 
Although David is now addressing the kings and the rulers, it would be wise for us to also hear what it is that he says. God in his mercy and grace gives a warning to those who would rebel against him and his anointed. He doesn't have to give a warning. Nothing obligates him to give a warning. But he does. It tells us that our God still stands ready. tells them that instead of living for yourself and serving yourself, live for Jesus and serve him. He says, rejoice for trembling. Rejoicing results from knowing that you have received forgiveness because of the work of Jesus. And the tremble, that is that you never forget what it is that you've been given you don't deserve. And you're not receiving what it is that and trouble as a response to that. Some of you may have seen uh, someone maybe that wins like a hundred million dollars or something, right? They hand them the check, what do they do? They may be like, oh, I can't believe it. They, they're trembling. But that's, that's his picture. But that they realize what it is that they have seen, what they've received. And they rejoice for trouble. And they think, I have Christ. Yes. That's what this is pictures here. As the psalm closes, it closes with an offer of salvation. The salvation that God provides for Jesus Christ requires that you kiss the Son. To kiss the Son is to humble yourself, to submit to His rule, to turn from your sin, to turn and trust Jesus. In David's time, a defeated king would bring in, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the victorious king, would bring in the defeated king and the defeated king's army. And the defeated king would kick the, kiss the victorious king's feet. And it was a sign of submission. It was a sign of saying, you are now my king. You now reign. I am your servant. You have right over me. You, have, you are the victorious king. So he would kiss his feet. But just as in battle, this opportunity to submit to the king does not last forever. One day, each of us will pass from this place and the Lord does not return before him. But whichever one happens first, when that happens, it'll be too late to make a decision. It'll be too late to then submit. If you have chosen to be an authority unto yourself, refusing God and His Son, then you will suffer the just punishment of your rebellion. This psalm has started with, with people longing to burst their bonds, cast away their cords. Now, someone went through that, that, that piece that they desire to break free from God and His his law, his word, because it is there that they believe that they will find freedom from God and they believe that they will find happiness. That they'll finally be happy if they can just break free from those things. But here in this last verse, what we learn is, is that real happiness, blessedness, real happiness is found in King Jesus alone. Jesus is our only hope. He is the only hope of the nations. He's it. It is in him that we find the refuge from the wrath of God. If you're here this morning and 
never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Have you ever considered these things? I would urge you this morning to trust Him as your Lord and Savior. That you would seek refuge in Him. And if you have any questions about that, that you, I'll, I'll be here after the service. I'd love to talk to you. Pastor Jason, the music. Um, Pastor John is, 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 is in the back. People around you, we'd love to talk to you about that word need today. For those of you who have trusted in Christ or have taken refuge in Him, there's a couple of things to, to consider. A text like this, it's easy for our minds to drift to those people. Rulers, nations, I see it out there which goes to those people and we can settle into some kind of righteous indignation and, and simply stop there. I want to encourage you to consider if there is an area of your life that you are not submitting to the king. It may not be full-blown rebellion. It, it may be just it's a discreet little area that's your area. You're not going to allow King Jesus to exercise his, his authority. Are you submitting to the authoritative word of God in its entirety? Or, or are there parts of it that that you've decided already to leave these parts and break free from those bonds and, and, and cords. It's, you may be starting to think that the world seems to have something here on, on the world seems something to have something here on the word, and I, I need to break away from what the, the word says. Brothers and sisters, if that is you, scriptures would say, be wise. Heed God's instruction. Secondly, Take refuge in the king. Take hope. Take hope. Take hope knowing that, that God has decreed our circumstances. Take hope knowing that our king reigns. Take hope knowing that our king will return and all of creation will know who he is. Do not despair. Take hope. He is the victorious reigning king. He is your king. See 